1: All right, everybody, thank you for joining us on the Futurati podcast. Today, we're interviewing Michał Stanhoe, who is a Polish software engineer now working with Zapata on their quantum computing platform. Michał, thanks for being with us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So for the most part, your work consists of building software tools that let other people access quantum hardware. Tell us about what that process is like.
2: So a lot of this process is similar to building classical software in the sense that um, there is a lot of things that need to you know be in place to run quantum computer. So since most quantum computers nowadays are uh, accessible via cloud, you have to you know connect to this uh, connect to this device, you have to figure out how the API works um, you have to run um, like compile the circuits and, and so on so, A lot of that process is um, just, like, regular software engineering. But there are, like, a couple of pieces that are, I would say, distinct or specific for for quantum computing. And one of these is the fact that... I'm not even saying, you know, about... uh, about writing um, algorithms specifically just, just about like tools for others to access so one of the issues that we have in quantum computing is that it's such a new field that oftentimes the libraries change very fast so you know all the all the software packages that like other vendors are producing are changing so you have to adapt very fast to that and it requires continuous maintenance and continuous work to, to keep everything up to date so that's, that's definitely one thing. Um, the other thing is that we don't have, as a field, we don't have um, worked out all the useful abstractions yet. So if you are working on, a, on quantum circuits, you usually work at very low level. And one thing is that we don't have good enough abstractions Another thing is that simply um, the hardware is so, you know, like so crude nowadays that you need to have control over. You cannot afford to make mistakes, even on the lowest level. So, so th- does that mean that
0: like, does that mean you know? when you you're you're, um, you're programming the computer has to be like 400 degrees below zero, and then you have to wear parkas and everything when you're typing. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: uh, fortunately, fortunately not. No, <laughs> um, fortunately not. But uh, what I mean is that you know when you are when you are writing software for like classical computers, you don't need to think about NAND gates, right, or and or gates, and and compilation in quantum computing. The problem is that every single gate in your quantum circuit counts, and every single gate like adds additional error uh, kind of to the to the overall process. So you need to have that in mind. You cannot go like too too high in the layers of abstractions because um, you'll simply lose control over all those details that that really count.
1: Okay, so I have several questions about the the abstractions layer and and how that impacts the usability of the quantum computers that you and other people are working sure. on. So how high up the abstraction stack would you say you've gotten? So obviously when when I write computer software, I'm not thinking about any of those things. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, for loops and while loops and recursion and things like that. Presumably when programming quantum computers, you are hovering significantly closer to the hardware. Uh, So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how much you've been able to abstract that out. And then I'm curious as to how that's impacted the sorts of people that are able to use quantum computers and what they're able to build with them.
2: Sure. So, well, not surprisingly, it all depends on what what exactly are you working on Um, because Usually at the beginning, when you, you know, are working on some algorithm, you work on a simulator, right? And simulator, well, it's more forgiving than the real thing. And it's ideal simulator. Um, and you basically can run it on your own laptop, so we you don't you know, care about the costs. Um, so you can basically you can work a little bit you know, higher uh, on the, on the abstraction level. So what usually you have is, um, for example, for, for the, the thing I'm mostly focusing on, which are variational quantum algorithms, um, like a class of, of algorithms for quantum computing, um, there are some building blocks so that I usually don't think about, you know, which gate goes exactly where in my, in my circuit. But then, when you start thinking about making this code more efficient uh, about compiling in on a specific architecture uh, so like you know different chips have a very different architecture, then you start to think, well, okay, I have you know five different gates that basically can do the job that I need, so which one I need to choose right um, to to actually be able to run it on the real hardware or The hardware has like this specific layout, which means that like certain qubits are connected to certain other qubits. So we start thinking, okay, can I actually encode my problem a little bit differently? So it fits the layout better, right? Can I, maybe some parts of the circuit that I have are not that important. Maybe I can, you know, um, omit them or like move them elsewhere. So that I don't need to to do perform operations that are very costly on this specific architecture, and then you are, you are getting you know lower and lower on this on this stack. And something that I, I personally never never done, but uh, I know some people are working on this level. They're working on the level of the the pools, right? So each gate in a quantum computer, depending on the specific hardware, but, but usually it's like some kind of the microwave pel- pools. And the way you like, shape these pulse changes the behavior of the gate. So it turns out that you can tune this, the shape of the pulse to, to actually get more precise gates. And, well, this is the level of abstractions you can get uh, on... It's like, you know, having... I, I guess it's like similar to having a classical transistor and like tuning the transistor do you know, to behave in a certain way to, to perform the NAND or, like, or operation where, like, the specific voltages um, levels are, are crossed or not. Um, and uh, people people are doing this, like, you know, nowadays, like, they, they are on, on this level. And um, that's not something uncommon, I would say.
1: Right. So that it doesn't sound like an abstraction at all. I mean, you're, you're down there fiddling around with voltages and, and microwave <laughs> pulses. I mean, that's, that's just physics. You're dictating to physics how it's supposed to operate in order to to execute these logical uh, logical computations.
2: Yes, but for example, I, I never did that, right? I, I can I, I operate like higher on the abstraction layer. So I, I usually um I usually work on those uh, higher level building blocks of of, kind of variational algorithms. So instead of working on specific gates uh, then like putting those gates in the circuit one by one, uh, i more often like use layers of gates. So I know that like, now I apply, you know, X gate on every qubit and then I apply like C not gates on like every pair of qubits and then something else happens. So it's, well, it's still pretty low level, but, uh, well, at, at least a little bit, high, like much higher, I guess, than the microwave pulses
0: at, at the
1: level of a gate. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the stage that we're in on quantum computing because I mean people have been working on this for quite a while, but it's it would seem like an analogy here is that we're still at the kind of the mainframe computing level, and uh maybe twenty years from now we get to the personal quantum computers. And then we start over with the homebrew clubs and stuff like that people have their own quantum computers in their basements. And uh, is that a possibility or?
2: <laughs> so uh, there are, I would say like for, to, to what you said, like there are two fundamental reasons why it probably won't happen and why our perspective and comparisons with the kind of classical computing might be a little bit off. So the first reason is uh, the personal quantum computers might not happen because. Well, first, for most quantum computing architectures, we will probably not be able to escape this like almost zero Kelvin cooling equipment. And um, I don't think you want to have this kind of refrigerators in your basement.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: uh, and. That's like one thing, but the other thing that quantum computings are much less universal in what, case, what they can do than uh, classical computers. I mean, there are people writing uh, games using quantum computers uh, and things like this, but for like a kind of regular person, they might not have enough appeal because you know not everyone is interested in solving optimization problems in uh, solving quantum chemistry problems and so on, Um, and I think like people were able to do like kind of much more mundane things with regular computers in the the early days, though I wasn't there so I might be off here. And the second reason is uh, that actually we have classical computers to help us build quantum computers, and this is something that also might like skew the timelines and you know, make this progress faster because, well, we have very, very powerful tool at our hands right now. Um, though maybe the engineering and scientific challenges are even bigger than they were. So it's like, you know, hard to say.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make the analogy that um, we we're actually getting to a point where we have backyard nuclear power plants as well. So, that that's something we never thought we would want to have in, in our backyard either so <laughs> yeah, that's
2: true but I, I haven't i don't have one in my backyard so you know hard, oh, hard yeah. to say yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, something else that i've been kind of wondering about with respect to the proliferation of quantum computers and the possibility of a personal quantum computer is, is the way the economics is different this time around so i think there are at least two major respects in which this is the case the first is that we have cloud computing these days. And so it's not necessary for you to have a quantum computer in your basement, notwithstanding the temperature problems, because you can just have an API call out to AWS bracket, or I think Zapata's is called Oracle. Is that right? Orchestra. 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 Okay. Orchestra. And then also you've got, you've got economic competition from the saturation of Classical personal computers, which are everywhere now, and so a personal quantum computer would need to be much, much better for the specific applications that you are wanting to interact with. For it to be worth developing a personal quantum computer, uh, so I just don't—I don't know that the market is there, and I was wondering if you'd comment on that.
2: So I don't think there is, but um, it doesn't really mean anything. In the sense that it was probably really hard for people you know developing computers in the like i don't know like 50s 60s to to imagine like how you can use these machines for kind of personal use and uh there are some people that probably could imagine these things that we are doing with computers now but, but uh most of them probably had hard time doing that and i think the same applies to quantum computers that's like I don't see what you could what like a person who is not, you know, uh, kind of super interested in like science would do with such device. But this doesn't mean that someone wouldn't find this out in like a couple of years. So as I said, like for example some people are, are playing with quantum computers to make computer games. So there are like I, I've I've heard about one guy who use quantum computer to generate randomly levels on, like, some, some game map or something that. like this. So it's pretty cool stuff to do. So if some people might be interested in that, uh, that's for sure. But, yeah, I, I don't think it will happen at least in the next 10 years. Uh, probably the cost would be, uh, you know, too, too high, and the, the access might be a little bit scarce.
1: Okay, so you've said that uh, when you've had the chance to do research, you tend to focus on what are called variational quantum algorithms, and you've described these as being hybrid classical quantum algorithms. So let's start with you just saying a few words about what that means. So how is it that an algorithm can be hybrid classical quantum? Are parts of it quantum and parts of it classical, or do they interface in some way?
2: Sure. So there are many different ways uh, that this can happen. And to be honest, uh, I think most of the quantum algorithms are in some way hybrid, uh, be, at least for the sake of the fact that you, you have to put some kind of data on the quantum computer and you don't do that kind of by hand and by like manual switching, you know, some, like pushing some buttons at the computer, you do that using software. Uh, but in this case, mm, the, the hybrid element is that in variational quantum algorithms, we use quantum computers to create, to compute some quantum state. And this quantum state usually has some information about the, for example, quantum system we want to simulate. So for example, mm, out of this, we we want to find the minimum energy of like some configuration of a molecule. in such case, we kind of try to simulate this molecule on a quantum chip. And when we read out from the quantum chip, what's the the state of it? What's the quantum state? We can calculate energy out of that. And this is like the the part that quantum computer is doing. And the reason why we are doing it on quantum computer is that simulating molecules is very hard on a classical one, but much like easier on, on a quantum computer. So this is, the only thing that we are doing in no a kind of computer. Then when we actually got the energy from the um, quantum computer or like the, the cost function value that we, that we wanted, uh, then we use classical optimizers to modify the parameters of the quantum circuit. So we basically say, okay, let's change this parameter in this gate, that parameter on the other gate. And let's try again to produce even better approximation of the, you know, state of the molecule that we wanted. So basically we have an optimization loop where we use quantum computer to calculate the cost function, but all the other parts are classical. So
1: that's really interesting to me. It's not intuitively obvious that a classical optimizer would be able to handle the hyperparameters on a quantum circuit. So is that, a result that's well known—is that the way people tend to do it? It's just—it's just not clear to me that, like, I wouldn't sure, guess sure, that, sure. that was true.
2: So I, I like to think about quantum computer in this uh, in this uh, scenario as a black box. So you basically can have a black box with some parameters, and you don't really care whether it's a quantum computer, regular computer, on or like you know a person sitting with a notebook and handing you out, like kind of cards with you know numbers uh you just give some parameters in and to get some other result out and you can use kind of classical optimizer in any of the scenarios um i would say that the performance of the classical optimizer might depend on the nature of this black box right so it might turn out that some optimizers were better or worse with certain types of black boxes Uh, so this might be like Non-intuitive, but fortunately, classical optimizers work pretty well with this quantum, uh, like quantum circuits.
1: Are there are there quantum optimizers?
2: Not really. Uh, so usually, for those who know these terms, uh, like we use optimizers like uh, BFGS or Nelder-Mead, SPSA, Adam. Uh, there are some optimizers that are kind of more prevalent in the quantum world, I guess, because they turn out that they work slightly better with quantum computers. So one of the characteristics uh, here that you want to take into uh, account is the fact that your optimizer, like every evaluation of the cost function, is expensive. So you cannot use optimizer which just runs, you know, millions and millions and millions of, of samples to to make it work. Um, even because on the classical computer this might be cheap, cheap and fast. On the quantum, it's it's not. So we rather want to choose optimizers which optimizers which need like less uh, cost function evaluations. And also there are like some specific things about the um, kind of optimization landscape, um, energy landscape of the of the problem you're trying to solve that. Uh, also make some optimizer work better or worse. So I wouldn't say there's like a quantum optimizer, at least uh, not yet. Uh, Some people, like you you, you could propose in in, in principle to have a quantum computer running an optimization algorithm to optimize parameters of the other quantum computer, but we are definitely not there yet.
1: So... Is this one of those things where people just sort of messed around until they found that Atom or or one of these other optimizers tends to work pretty well for quantum computers? Or are there deeper mathematical reasons, sets of proofs that demonstrate that the features of this optimizer are such that it's better for a quantum computer? Because a lot of machine learning is just sort of firing into the dark. And when you hit something, you stick with it.
2: Yeah, so I would say more firing in the dark, but... On the other hand, I, I'm not kind of very theoretical in my approach, so my I might simply not uh, not be able to appreciate some of the like you know deeper reasoning that, that went in. Um, though I, I never heard any like compelling reason for like fundamentally why you know people say this should work better or worse than than the other one. Um, I wouldn't say if if such research exists, I, I wouldn't say it's like very mainstream. Uh, most of the time, it's it's more like experimentation, and people like develop. I re- remember like last year, Google proposed like a new optimizer in one of their papers for quantum computer, where they simply you know modify one of the gradient descent method uh, to kind of account for 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 the fact that you every cost function evaluation is expensive and. You know, you, you kind of don't want to do too many of them. But, um, yeah, more more experimented experimentation, I guess.
0: So a little over a year ago, uh, Google claimed they had achieved quantum supremacy and uh, <clears throat> um, and they were going to beat over the head by a lot of people saying, no, nah, you didn't really do that, um, even though they had uh, solved the problem that was given to them. And uh, so it was essentially... Uh, solving a problem that would have taken traditional supercomputers 10,000 years to accomplish. And recently, a new headline came out that said that China has developed this uh, ultra-super quantum computer that, that uh, did something that would take 2.5 billion years, and they did it in 200 seconds. And so I'm. I'm not sure how you quantify something that would take two and a half billion years. But um, is are we are, are we up moving up this exponential curve way faster than people imagine?
2: I don't think we're moving way faster than people imagine. Um, though, like the, the progress is definitely definitely good. Regarding, I, I haven't like dig too deep in this, like, recent, recent announcement. Uh, For Google, well, they designed this experiment in a way that it would be hard for a classical computing, and it would be relatively easy for a, you know, quantum one. So, um, you know, you you can, like, they they show that you can create a problem where quantum computer works better than classical today. Um, And this is from a scientific point, it is very like valid and important result from the perspective of, like practical application, it's not not real, not that much, I would say. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's important though, if uh, the, the problem in quantum computing is that it's like very easy to like overhype something. And sometimes like uh, probably even often like people unintentionally say something that they think is kind of obvious that, you know, there are some caveats to it, but popular press, uh, might, like journalists might not, not, not know that. So they, they kind of twist it a little bit, uh, or just like omit some important part that they didn't know is important. And then suddenly you, you get some, you know, like headlines.
0: Yeah. that just uh, almost so- That almost never happens. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. That's true.
0: That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: journalists are well known for their scientific credentials and their impeccable integrity. Yeah. Um, so, but but to keep with this, so <laughs> you've said that variational quantum algorithms could be key to developing useful quantum computers in the near future. So, w- we know that theoretical results are are quite important, but around here we're pretty interested in the the near. Uh, to medium-term economic viability of quantum computers. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the applications of quantum computing technology to various problems. And you can stick with variational quantum algorithms if you want to, or just speak in general about the the new technologies that are emerging.
2: Yeah, so um, actually, like, last week, uh, so it was, like, December 2020, um, there was Q2B conference, um, which is one of the... Or even the biggest uh, kind of conference about quantum computing in business, and one of the um, in in one of the lectures, one of the presentations, um, some researchers researchers said that they surveyed the field, and it looks like there are three main fields uh, where quantum computing would be useful, and like interests is distributed pretty evenly among the the three of them. So this is um, quantum computing for simulations in in chemistry and materials. The other is optimization, and the third one is quantum machine learning. So these are like the near term, you know, things that, that people focus on. And I would say that for quantum there, there's a lot of research going on uh, in different directions. It's, it's really hard to say what would be, you know, like the, the first that brings any viability. Uh, but there are probably some distinct features of the problems that would actually bring value to the market um, in the near term. So, so, yeah.
0: so what, one of the ways we look at this is in terms of the killer app you know, the the app that everybody has to download on their computer. So um, uh, is there such a thing as a killer app out there for quantum computing?
2: Um, it doesn't seem so yet. Uh, it seems that there is a lot of gradual progress that we'll be doing and just, you know, like improving the results step by step. But it doesn't seem like there will be one thing that would like revo- revolutionize everything, um, at least in the at least in the short term. In the long term, I, I imagine. Well, one thing, short algorithm and like you know breaking RSA uh, looks like it might be a non mm-hmm. killer app. <laughs> uh, but um, the other things definitely might be from the the chemistry simulation optimization. Mm, there are some reservations in the community about the optimization because the type of speed up that we can prove we can get from quantum computing are only quadratic so like n squared um, uh, and not exponential as in case of of chemistry but to be honest this is like still open debate um, like how useful the quantum computing would be in the end because as in machine learning a lot of methods are heuristic and we don't have kind of proofs of the speed up it turns out that neural networks are pretty you know good for a lot of tasks and it might turn out with uh, variational quantum algorithms they they also don't have this like guaranteed speed up but it might turn out that they, they actually uh, allow you to solve a lot of problems much faster than classical ones um, even without you know provable speed ups so I would say that in the next five ten years, I would rather expect quantum computing to to give like maybe five years. Uh, not sure about ten ten years. Uh, a lot can happen, but in five years, more like gradual speed ups to very specific problems that would require a lot of effort to just like map the problem from the classical space into into the you know quantum space, and. Once we prove that this is possible, then it can kind of propagate and and grow. An example I particularly like, and this is something I heard from my friends who are quantum chemists. Um, I I don't know the nitty gritty of this process, but basically the the VQE, so one of the kind of most important variational algorithms, uh, we can use it to estimate the ground state energy of a molecule. And while ground state energy of the molecule by itself is not like extremely important i mean knowing the knowing like this single value won't allow you to um, uh, build anything like revolutionary it actually is one of the first thing you kind of put into the huge computational pipeline when you are making. Simulations for for materials, molecules, and so on. So just if we can, you know, have this initial value, um, get it more accurate by like ten percent, it will make all the like other values in the in the um, in the chain uh, more accurate, right? Or maybe they will start converging faster because you know they're closer to accurate and so on. So it will probably bring some. Improvements to to like whole computational pi- pipeline in, quant- in in like chemistry simulations, material simulations, mm. and this might be very valuable, but not groundbreaking by itself.
1: So I, th- I think it's fair to say that doing uh, quantum chemistry simulations is probably not going to be the killer app for quantum computing. I, I, I don't know that the average person cares enough about uh, the ground <laughs> ground state of molecules to, to be messing with it. But we interviewed Mark Jackson, and, and he yes. said that the day could come where Google Maps has an API call out to a quantum computer and is using that to do some sort of traffic route optimization. And you might be using quantum computers and not even know it. So I'm curious as to whether or not you have any sense of the kinds of problems for which a quantum computer is uniquely suited to solve. So, I mean, obviously simulating a quantum mechanical system is a is sort of a give me, but outside of that, predicting the weather or optimizing you know, portfolio parameters, do these things share any common features?
2: So I would say that problems, okay, so, Actually, one there there is one application that seems unreasonably promising to me, uh, which is natural language processing. Right. So it again, like this is from one of the talks that uh, from the recent conference. But it seems that the language has some properties, if you express it as like kind of mathematical model, that resemble the quantum systems. And actually, quantum computers might be pretty good at like processing natural language uh, for the reasons I, I, I don't fully comprehend. But this is like uh, I would say very surprising. That the first time I, I heard about it, I, I thought, well, this sounds just like uh, you know like buzzwords uh, to me. But but it turns out that there's like some some deeper rationale why why this might be true. Apart from that, usually the problems that quantum computers uh, would be particularly suited are the problems that have like small representation but very rich um, space of states in the sense that uh, combinatorial optimization problems are you know this, this kind of problems right because even though you can express um, solution to, to, to a problem in like several bits, right of several numbers actually the number of configurations is really huge and so this this problem is with like um, kind of narrow you know at the beginning and the end but like very wide uh, in between uh these are problems that probably will suit quantum computers uh well
0: yeah um i I often uh, do a lot of work on the autonomous transportation uh, space, and the 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 idea of, of actually managing a whole traffic system uh, with millions of cars around an entire country or multiple countries and then making sure that the right cars are in the right place at the right time, um, figuring that we're going to have people who want the cheap vehicles and people that want the more expensive vehicles. And there's probably going to be like eight, eight different grades in between. Um, And then uh, making sure that they're, uh, maintained properly and they're, they're, they're checking all the sensors in the vehicles as as people are coming and going and understanding all of the things that can possibly go wrong. It, it seems like there are uh, truly a staggering number of variables involved in autonomous transportation. Um, is, is that something that would lend itself better to uh, a, a quantum world or traditional computing?
2: So it's probably one Land very well to quantum world, at least not in the foreseeable future, because there are so many variables. And if, you know, we have a quantum computer with like million qubits, which is a lot, then, well, if you even use like every qubit to kind of encode one bit of information, well, it's like, you know, like not that much information that you can encode, right? And um, people are working on ways to kind of, get around this and uh, actually put like kind of push more data into quantum computers in different ways but uh this doesn't seem like a kind of good um a like good fit for quantum computer but on the other hand what seems like a better idea is are more like high level uh, problems for example of of design um or like designing the whole system in the sense that it might turn out that the problems where you solve something once, and you know even a like, small increase in the quality of your solution leads to very like a, you know a lot of value uh, is a better, right? So instead of solving traveling salesman pers- traveling salesman uh, problem, you know every day every time you kind of make an API call to the Google Maps. Uh, at least for me, it it looks that a better solution would be to have um, using quantum computer for, I don't know, like designing the the layout of the city better, right? Or something like this. Because this is something that you can spend weeks running the computer nonstop to compute it. And if you get a percent, like a a solution, which is 3% better than the best classical one, it's actually, you know, you benefit a lot.
1: Okay. Yeah, so it sounds like the big bottleneck there is just not having enough uh, corrective qubits to do the calculations you want to do, right? And and that's sort of a, a big problem, the difference between physical and logical qubits, and it's pretty difficult to get enough logical qubits to do computations that are really sophisticated. Do I have that right?
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of problems, but that's definitely one of them.
1: So you have this, this effort, it's Q for climate. Is that right? Trying to use quantum computers to solve climate change. So it seems like that would require a lot of qubits as well. So why does it make sense to try to use a quantum computer to solve a problem like climate change, which, you know, I think we can agree has, has quite a few variables uh, as opposed to something like building a better classical supercomputer.
2: So uh, a Q for climate is like the initiative we with a couple of other people from from quantum computing community we are putting together and our our aim is to just you know do research and find places where quantum computing could actually help like so identify what are the kind of most useful cases where quantum computing could help solving uh, climate change in like one way or another so when we are like doing research, it turns out that actually you know, some of the ideas uh, that one might initially have are not a good fit for quantum computers, right? Because um, so on one hand, modeling kind of the whole model of the Earth climate, this is doesn't look like you know very good uh, fit for quantum computers because there are like just so many variables. And you would need like really a, a huge quantum computer. On the other hand, things like maybe optimizing the wind farm and like you know the where each wind turbine should go and like how it should be um, like adjusted. This might be because um, you know perhaps uh, you can solve this optimization problem on a quantum computer and get a better result done on the classical one. And I, I don't think by like any means that quantum computing quantum computing would be a silver, silver bullet for you know uh, solving climate change problems. Um, but we would like to what we would like to, to, to see is like actually st- made the community use quantum computing for solving this particular challenge instead of many other challenges that you know we we don't think are as pressing uh nowadays so i would say that actually in in a lot of uh, in a lot of um cases it makes much more sense to invest in classical computing for solving this these challenges um but quantum computing is I I, like think about it as this like enabling technology in some sense that it's hard to say when it's more mature, it's, it's hard to see for us today, what it will allow us to do and like what kind of, you know, possibilities it will unlock because just being able to, you know, simulate things, simulate like new materials or, um, so maybe, or, or like improve the accuracy of uh, chemistry simulations this might be like really uh, a transformative thing right so two examples one is um there is this process in the in the nature called nitrogenase where um where which we use for creating the how we call it um fertilizers. And we know that in nature, this process can occur at kind of regular temperature, regular pressure, but on the industrial scale, we are doing that. We don't know how to do that in this, this uh, conditions. So we use a lot of, you know, very high temperature, very high pressure. And it it's actually, a, you know, portion of like earth's like energy output to just like kind of produce fertilizers. And it seems that simulating uh, one of the molecules that will help us understand how this process works in nature, uh, it might you know, help a lot. And like, it might allow us to like, lower the energy consumption. Um, so this would be like, you know, a big deal. On the other hand, it's debatable like how big quantum computer you would need to, to actually solve this problem.
1: Yeah, so I think that that people tend to underestimate the impact of incremental changes. It's easy to lose sight of what it would mean for chemistry simulations to be fifteen or twenty percent better, or to optimize the production of fertilizers such that it takes you know twenty or thirty percent less energy. Like what that would mean in terms of freed up calories, and in terms of better production, yeah. in terms of you know, like better yields all across the earth. Um, I, I was wondering if you could lay out some of the other areas that your research group has identified as as being good f- candidates for use uh, with quantum computers. So wind farm layout optimization, that's really cool. I, I never thought, of, I mean, I, my, my mind immediately just jumped to weather simulations, right? That's, that's just sort of the mm-hmm. obvious thing, but uh, w- what are some others that you've identified? Um,
2: so I, I wouldn't say any of, any of this is uh, like definite. Um, we, we try to be very careful about making any claims, and um, we, you know, we want to do very, very like proper research first, and then kind of you know throw, throw around ideas. Um, I would say some other some other potential uh, like directions that look promising um, could be. Using quantum computers for solving differential equations, so that's like not my specialty. But there are some quantum algorithms for solving differential equations, and differential equations are like in a lot of places. So um, if there are, there these algorithms are more for the kind of long-term quantum computing. But you know, if we are able to, just like. Again, like concrete example would be like design the wings of the airplane better, right? And just reduce the consumption of the airplane by like ten or twenty percent. That that would be great. I, I don't claim using quantum computer would kind of you know lead to that output, but um, but perhaps it could, right? So th- this kind of use cases, like I would say, differential equations might be promising, but they require a lot of more research. Mm. From optimization problems, wind power optimization. Maybe um, there are some problems in like network uh, optimization, like electricity network, electricity grid. Especially once we shift to more um, like this the new, new paradigm of you know uh, energy and power systems, where where you have like a lot of producers and not like a couple of central ones, and so on. There might be optimization problems that might yield to quantum computers, but there might be not. Like as I said, like it's it's really hard to say. Um, and in, in in chemistry and materials, yeah, like as well. Like the, this this nitrogenase is one of the uh, like one example, but there you know a lot of, a lot of like chemical reactions that are happening on an industrial scale that could be done kind of more efficiently. Though, as like none of these looks like a killer app, uh, to be honest. Maybe this this nitrogenase, but still, like it might be not that easy to actually do that. Uh, but I, I don't think right now there is like any single killer app that like quantum computer will like you know significantly um, help solving climate change in the next like five ten years. Maybe in twenty, but that's like too far away in the future to to really say.
0: Yeah, one of <clears throat> one of the discussion points we'd gotten into in the past was about mm-hmm. um, a- actually doing uh, purchase transactions with cryptocurrencies, and, uh, and how the blocks and the blockchain have gotten too too big and too massive to make that convenient because it takes too long a time. Um, to To process process them, I mean, you go to a, a Walmart store or someplace, and it it, <clears throat> it becomes painful. Is is that something that could be somehow streamlined uh, with the quantum engine in the background?
2: So I don't know. I've never heard about. I mean, I, I, from time to time, people ask about this, like quantum and blockchain uh, kind of use cases. But I've never heard about any like s- significant work in this field uh, in this like cross section. From what I heard, it seems that it's unlikely. But
1: All who right. knows? <laughs> we, we can just keep putting buzzwords together. Like, how about how about an AI on a quantum blockchain? Is that does that, does that get your motor turning? Um, <laughs>
0: Okay, it so, <laughs> so I, wanted,
1: I wanted to ask you. So, like, like me, you take the ethics of technology very seriously. And in the material you sent over for us to prepare for the interview, uh, you noted that you're interested in effective altruism. So, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about that. And the first is what's your framework for evaluating the benefit or harm of a technology? So, it, it's, it's obviously very difficult to forecast how people will end up using it, but how do you sort of get purchase on that question and, and think through the ramifications of a new technology?
2: So, well, I, I wouldn't claim I have like very rigid framework, and you know, whenever I see hmm, interesting in technology, let's run it through a checklist and see you know how how promising or harmful it can be. <laughs> um, but and this this is something I, I, I try like kind of think, think a lot about um, and try to try to learn. But I would say that one thing are Mm, potential benefits definitely um so you know like if this technology go like really well right can it mm, benefit humanity in some tremendous way or in some moderate way right so i don't know like quantum computing has like a lot of like um kind of potential right we we don't know how much of that is true but but ideally like the potential is like really huge while i don't know producing you know more efficient uh, pencil sharpeners well it has like <laughs> kind of limited cap on like how beneficial <laughs> it could be right and on the other hand the same the same about harm so you know how harmful it can be so um, like some biotechnologies right they can be very beneficial but potentially they can also be extremely harmful, um, and this is this is something to to kind of keep in mind. So so one of the things is that like I I like keep asking myself like how this te- this technology can backfire, right? What if if you know all the things that can go wrong go wrong? Uh, can it like basically be an existential risk? So you know can it produce a risk that like the humanity will? Either die or like lock in in some like very kind of dystopian way, or there are like a couple of scenarios that things can go wrong. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is more about like, I would say, second order effects that even if you know this technology maybe directly doesn't cause uh, harm maybe it can accelerate some processes that are not beneficial for humanity. So, for example, the, the one, one way that quantum computing can you know, uh, indirectly cause harm is that it can lead to further, like faster advances in AI, which in turn can lead to developing some like rogue AI that can be harmful for humanity. Or it can lead to, you know, much easier, um, like lowering the costs of uh, some biotechnology procedures, which in turn might, for example, lead to producing like some some new bioweapons or things like this. Um, so while, in in case of quantum computing, right, like directly, it doesn't look like you know increasing computational power is is very harmful. It might indirectly affect us um, and and cause some harm. So, yeah, that's like two things that I usually uh, I don't like think about.
1: Right. Um, so one of the second-order effects is how how it would enable bad actors to mm-hmm. take control of resources or to mm-hmm. oppress people in various ways or to you know protect themselves while attacking other people. How do you think that we should go about developing quantum computing, such that it's more likely it's used for good as opposed to evil?
2: So, one thing is definitely have some very smart people to to think about this problem, and um, you know, just like have, I would say, experts in technology ethics, technology development, like look into this, and the earlier to look into this, the better. Um, and I know about like some initiatives in, um, regarding the quantum computing ethics, but I don't know about kind of any external for, for quantum world people investigating that, but this just might be my kind of, you know, kind of limited perception, but this is one thing. The other thing is, um, having people in the field, you know, think about it and feel responsible for, like this kind of issues because I I might be a little bit um, naive, but I think that if you have a company and you know in this company wants to use quantum computing for like making money at the expense of some group or someone, then if like all the scientists in this company say, hey, you know we are not interested in like developing this. And we will quit if you keep working on this project. Then it puts pressure on the, you know, on the on the company, right? So if we have people in this field who have this kind of, um, like, I don't know, like civic courage is, is the right kind of word uh, to extend like up and say, you know, this is this is a bad use of this this amazing technology. Uh, the more we have that, the kind of more resistant we are to using it for the bad though well that that will be in the kind of ideal world i guess uh i, I know like the real world is, is much more messy mm, but definitely just like talking about it and like having discussion around it uh, is like the first step and i'm happy to see like discussions like this in the, in the community um, also you know the more so one of the cases uh, where where this comes up uh, often is the cybersecurity right so if we develop quantum computers which are able to break RSA then this might lead to some kind of very um, dangerous situations regarding like privacy you know like stealing mm. Data information from from one another and so on, Um, and the problem is that if we don't start to think about it right now, we will not develop the protocols like cryptographic protocols that are resistant to quantum quantum computing. And there there are such protocols, and like people are working on that, Uh, but they need to be in place, you know, before the quantum computers are powerful enough to 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 break the protocols that we have today. Furthermore, for many actors, uh, like governments, banks and so on, they also care about the data that they like the past data, right? So s- some bad actors might be already starting gathering the data from today. Which are encrypted, hoping that in twenty years they will have quantum computer powerful enough to decrypt that data from twenty years. And you know, some information is garbage after twenty years, but some other information might be still very valuable. And similarly with other cases. Well, it's just like worthwhile to to think about uh, it right now instead of waiting until the technology matures, because this is a use, like this is a case which we can imagine today. So the more people think about it, and the the more people try to figure out how the technology can backfire, that better prepared we can be for future.
1: Absolutely, so I I wanted to wrap up on a a slightly more, um, a happier note. And I know that you spend a lot of time on mentorship and community building through efforts like the Quantum Open Source Foundation. So I wanted to just give you a couple of minutes to advertise for that and talk about what that looks like, who's involved, the kinds of projects you work on, anything you wanna discuss.
2: Sure, sure so um, quantum open source foundation is our goal is to support the development of you know open source software in, in quantum computing to popularize um and you know educate quantum computing like foster the community which coming back to the previous question we also believe you know it's like good for everyone because the the more open the field is uh Kind of the you know probably the, the better it is for like the, the free flow of the of the knowledge and, and so on. But uh we have as a as quantum open source uh foundation we, we have a couple of initiatives that we do to like achieve that goal. Um so one that I'm mostly involved in is um the mentorship program. So the mentorship program is is the program where we have mentors who are professionals in the field or academics um, who are working with their mentees who are interested in quantum computing, want to you know they're, like often their students, uh, software engineers who want to kind of learn more about the field. And they work for three months on some quantum computing project in an open source manner. Um, so the benefit is like it benefits everyone, right? So you know, community gets some cool projects, um, some contributions to to existing projects. Uh, the mentees, you know, really learn a lot in the process, and mentors also, um, you know, are happy to kind of give back what they know. And they also learn learn a lot when they when they um, teach other people. So this is the the project I'm um, like overseeing and like I'm working on uh, mostly at QSF. Right now there is the second batch, and during the second batch uh, we have about twenty something mentors and about thirty participants, um, who we selected from. Total of seven hundred fifty applicants, mm-hmm. um, and the batches are roughly like the projects are three months long. So, the current batch will finish in January, and in January will also open um, rep- recruitment for recruitment for the next op- the applications, like for the next batch. So, the next batch applications will be open like end of January, early February. In the March, we want to start the, the third batch and like just introduce more people into the community and do some more cool projects. So that's what's happening at, at QOSF. If anyone is interested, uh, go to www.qosf.org. And there's a like, webpage about mentorship as well.
0: So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that?
2: So I have a blog which is called Masty Thoughts, and you can find like all the information about me. Uh, you can learn more about quantum computing. Uh, there is my email there. Um, so I would recommend to just go there and, and find me or Twitter, LinkedIn. That's also always a good option.
1: All right. Well, fan- fantastic. Thanks so much, Michal.
2: Thank you for having me. Have a nice Thanks. afternoon.